Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, welcome. Happy Valentine's Day to, for those of you who uh, who cater to this particular uh, holiday. I, I never have, even as a child. I think Susan and I talking about this once... Um, I don't know what they did in your schools, but back in the 50s, man, it was a cruel holiday because kids would bring Valentines to school, which would be exchanged, and there was no thing like you had to bring one for everybody. <laughs> and it was, I just thought it was brutal. It was almost like a form of bullying. Um, so I've never, and I ain't the sentimental type anyway, so uh, anyway, but if it, if you like it, if you like hearts and chocolate and being forced to be nice to somebody that otherwise you wouldn't be, go right, go for it, go for it. We shouldn't need a designated holiday to say I love you. I'm such a wet blanket, aren't I? Um, okay, so uh, we we have a guest coming in um, in the second half of the show, and it's he's a history prof from Oxford, no less. So, I mean, he knows his stuff, and he's here to tell us about walls, <laughs> walls. Why is that hard to say? Walls in history. Uh, why they were built, and did they work? And so we'll get a historical <laughs> view on the absurd situation we now find ourselves in with our um, wall-obsessed uh, president. Uh, before that, though, I got to stay local with this Post-Gazette story. It is, um, it says, let's put it this way. The um, Washington Post today had a pretty big story on it. I think it was the Post I read it in. I think so. Yeah, I don't think it was in the New York Times, but it, yeah, I think the Washington Post had a, a big story. This is such an embarrassment to, um, not to Pittsburgh, but to the Block family. And you gotta wonder uh, what's gonna end up uh, happening here. Also, the, uh, the union, the Newspaper Guild, uh, has decided uh, that since the ownership of the paper is really refusing to acknowledge the seriousness of what happened uh, Saturday night. Um, they have released um, eyewitness accounts uh, that were written by four of the people who were in the newsroom when the publisher and editor-in-chief, J.R. Block, uh, stumbled drunkenly in on Saturday night um, and uh, terrorized people and uh, including his young daughter. Um, so th these eyewitness accounts are really flesh it out and <laughs> unbelievable. So now this is all now nationally, national news. Um, uh, J.R. Block did not appear in the uh, back at the Post Gazette until late yesterday, when he was uh, escorted back in with his uh, by his first lieutenant Keith Burris, the guy who's taken over the editorial page. Uh, he has issued no apologies to his staff. Said nothing about what happened. And I mentioned yesterday how the Washington Post is in a difficult position right now because a big, another big salacious story involves their owner, Jeff Bezos, and his, uh, his penis, for God's sake, and the National Enquirer, and how when the owner is the story, and the story is not necessarily flattering or something you want to cover because it's embarrassing, uh, it, it's difficult for a paper. But the Post is doing it, and uh, the New York Times specifically tipped their hat to, um, to how they're handling that situation. The same cannot be said, of course, for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. 
which finally, I believe today, uh, had a story. Maybe it was yesterday, maybe it was today, not sure. The story was this big. It was this big, and it said nothing. It, uh, it really said nothing. It's the kind of thing you would read and say, what? And you would start asking a million questions, which of course the story should. And as far as I, there was no byline on that story. I'm sure no reporter would put a byline on it. So there, uh, I can't imagine the chaos over there. But if I may, um, and assuming uh, most of you, and I could be wrong, have not heard these uh, first person accounts, uh, let me uh, share them with you. Um, there is also video, apparently, which has not been released. Although I think WTAE uh, television had a snippet of something. Um, but there is video. The Guild is handling this very well. They seem to have more concern about his daughter than he did. Uh, they don't want to embarrass her. So that's why we ain't seeing video, because there's a 12-year-old um, sobbing child, terrorized sobbing child involved. Um, one of the uh, women, I, I'll read this wo woman's account. Uh, she uh, is the w was a, a web editor who was there, Marianne Mazira, and uh, I'll skip some of it, but she talks about how uh, the evening of Saturday, February 8th, J.R. Block uh, called in from downstairs because he couldn't open the door. Somebody went down to uh, help him get in, and he came up with his daughter up to the third floor. This is around 10 p.m. And then I'll read what she says. After Mr. Block stepped off the elevator and proceeded to walk briskly in a slightly stumbling, awkward manner through the newsroom, he was immediately yelling about various topics, pointing and waving his finger repeatedly up in the air and swinging his arms. He was very angry and irate. The entire newsroom could hear his voice. As he got closer, he walked straight to the Guild bulletin board and pointed to and touched the Guild shame on the blocks sign. It was clear he was intoxicated. He yelled at Tim to immediately call Sally Stapleton, which Tim did, and told Mr. Block she's on her way. He shouted that he wanted a picture of himself and his daughter taken in front of the guild sign and demanded it run on the front page of tomorrow's paper. He fervently demanded the photo be taken now, right away, and forcefully grabbed his daughter's forearm, pulling her into the picture as she tried to pull away from him. She was crying, shaking, and pleading with her father that she did not want to be in a picture. She screamed, please, please, Daddy, no, multiple times. And multiple times he yanked on her arm, trying to pull her to his side so a photo could be taken. The photo editor on duty snapped a few pictures to placate Mr. Block as he continued to pull his sobbing daughter to his side. Through his threatening posture and verbally abusive tone, uh, he appeared extremely annoyed and he was growing angrier by the minute. In his heightened, agitated state, he continued to walk back and forth in front of the bulletin board and continued with his belligerent behavior. He did not and would not calm down. He repeatedly shouted out rude comments about various current and former managers, mocking them, saying they had gone to the dark side. The newsroom staff, what he called the working class, and his ex-wife, all of them, he bemoaned, uh, he was screaming about, and bemoaned what he called a loss of millions of dollars on the part of the company. He yelled at his daughter right up in her face, you're a block, don't you forget it, you're a block, you're not one of them, as he jabbed his finger into her shoulder. The woman who's writing this says, I started to shake. Other members of the staff were rattled and didn't know what to do. Uh, during this time, I texted the guild officer, Jonathan Silver, to let him know what was happening, and staffers working that night, were f we felt threatened. 
and that he should get here as soon as possible. Mr. Block continued pacing back and forth as he railed against the newsroom staff, chastising them for the guild signage, shouting that he'll get rid of certain guild officers. He continued to shout numerous insults and offensive comments about the managers and staff at his daughter, naming various specific individuals. At some point, I stood up from my desk and putting up my hand, told Mr. Block, stop. This has to stop. Yay, a woman stepped in. Stop, this has to stop. He let go of his daughter, who he was holding firmly by the wrist as she was sobbing, and stepped away for a bit. I sat back down. A few minutes later, in an attempt to get his daughter away from this traumatizing scene, I got up again and approached him. I asked if it would be all right if I took his daughter to our cafeteria to get some water. He angrily asked me where exactly I was taking her. I said, just down the way to the cafeteria, and we'll be right back. He said, okay, go with her. As I walked away with his daughter, she was visibly shaking and crying. I got her some water, and we went back into the newsroom about 10 minutes later. I told her to sit wherever she'd like, pointing to areas away from her father, who was still standing at the guild sign. She asked if she could sit near me. I said, sure. She was crying during the entire time she and her father were in the newsroom. Um, anyway, and then her account uh, of everybody, then other accounts um, come up, and they all essentially uh, say the same. Some, here is uh, their co uh, cops reporter, the police reporter, night reporter Andrew Goldstein, who I, I have met, saying that his daughter was screaming that she didn't want to have the picture taken, crying hysteri hysterically, red-faced. I felt terrible about what I was watching. He ripped a cell phone out of his daughter's hand because he thought she was trying to call her mother. He was screaming in his daughter's face about the Block family legacy. Do you want to be high class or low class? You're a block. You're one of us. You have to learn how to lead. She was shaking and crying. Then he said he was, I'm going to get rid of the bad guys, Jonathan Silver, Fuoco, and Shribman. I fired David Shribman. That's the former editor. I fired David Shribman. He continued to rant about Shribman. He said Shribman went to the dark side and he complained about John Craig and how John Craig hated the blocks. Oh, God. It, 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 it goes on and on. Um, at one point, oh, he then, somebody gets him into uh, the conference room and uh, I think this is the human resources guy who came. And this... Goldstein guy says, at one point I heard Steve yelling, don't touch me, don't touch me. And then J.R. said, then get out of my way and barreled past him. Um, Sally later told me that J.R. fired Steve about 50 times while they were in, the con in her office. Um, okay, so that's, I mean, that's the scene. Um, another reporter says pretty much the same thing. Uh, here's a slightly, uh, some additional information from a guy named Alex Miller. He said he'd lost $300 million on the newspaper, and then he said, do you know how much money $300 million is? No, of course you wouldn't. He yelled that the poster was all Shribman's fault. He said he'd fired Shribman for insubordination because he was disloyal. He said he should have never hired Shribman. He said the previous editor, John Craig, never should have been hired. He said no man is more hated by the blocks than John Craig. He said he next he was going to fire Fuoco and Silver. He said he'd close the whole paper unless we took down the poster. I've been working in newsrooms for more than a decade, and this is the most bizarre thing. And believe me, in newsrooms you see bizarre things. This is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. 
JR behaved in a way that would get any ordinary employee fired on the spot, escorted out of the building for everybody's safety. He was totally out of control. He was loud, violent, and it was frightening to witness. There was no way for anybody to know what he might do next. That's what's going on at uh, one of America's great newspapers. That's what they call themselves up at the, at the top. It's, wow, wow, wow. We'll, we'll post this on our Facebook page. Do, you want, do I send it to you or do you know where it is? Amy, you can find it. It's, um, it's at pghguild.com. It's from the newspaper guild. Okay. Unbelievable. I'm happy to give you an obit today. The reason being, I, I'm gl this is a terrible thing to say. This was a bad man. Thank God he's not with us anymore. I mean it. I was afraid of him in my life because he was a frightening, um, for some people, charismatic leader who, who I saw as a, as a fascist. And it always frightened me how many people fell for his crap. His name was Lyndon LaRouche, and he ran for the presidency of the United States a hundred million times, I don't know. And he had an organization that was big enough that he always was able to get federal matching funds, so he got lots of money. He... Um, One of his groups, he had a bunch of front groups that with great names that sounded like, oh, I should join that. Uh, one, the National Democratic Policy Committee. He received millions of dollars in taxpayer <laughs> money um, for these presidential campaigns he waged. Um, but more than that, his, uh, his organization sponsored candidates at the local level. And I recall many times Lyndon LaRouche candidates winning. They won a lot in this state, by the way, in Pennsylvania. Uh, in 1980, Lyndon LaRouche uh, outpolled Jerry Brown uh, in the Democratic presidential primary. In 86, that was his big year, he fielded candidates all over uh, the United States and they got tons of votes. I mean, like 40% of the vote. In, and here were the states in which he sh they showed the best. California, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Texas, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. They got on school boards. They got on city councils. He developed alliances with a, a lot of farmers groups, with the Teamsters, with anti-abortion people, with the Nation of Islam and the KKK. I, it was such a polyglot of craziness. He was always railing against the Eastern establishment. By the way, that's a dog whistle for Jews. Um, he also thought Queen Elizabeth, for some reason, was out to kill him. Um, he, he wrote many books and treatises that had huge circulation. He, um, he said that Jews created the Ku, Ku Klux Klan he described Native Americans as, quote, lower beasts. In Illinois, two of LaRouche followers in, um, what year was that? 86, this was his big year, in 86, two of his people 
won the Democratic nominations for Lieutenant Governor and Secretary of State in Illinois. So they were the Democratic candidates. They weren't Democrats. They were LaRouchians, but somehow they were on the Democratic ticket. They won. The guy who was running for governor on the Democratic side was the son of Adlai Stevenson, whose name was Adlai Stevenson Jr., or the third, the third, I guess. And he said, I will not run with these two. So he didn't, but he still sort of ran as an independent, I believe. Anyway, what all of that did was elect a Republican governor. Uh, this guy and the fact that so many people liked him, and in the course of doing talk radio, because I was doing talk radio in 1986, there were a number of people who listened to me who thought Lyndon LaRouche was the, was the answer. He finally ended up in jail, as so many of these types do. Uh, the FBI got him on uh, defrauding the Internal Revenue Service. He served quite a bit of time, um, I think about eight years, in uh, federal prison. But got out. Anyway, he died the other day, good riddance, uh, age 96. Uh, in his last years, he was thrilled to see Donald Trump elected president of the United States. That's uh, Lyndon Effen LaRouche. I thought he already was dead. I hadn't heard anything about him for some time. So, you know, sometimes when you see an obit, you think, yes, I know. No, you, you, certain people don't. I admit that I do. The world is a better place without him. Hey, um, the uh, August Wilson Cultural Center is having a Valentine's Day special this weekend. It's a perfect one. It's Gregory Porter. Oh, yeah. This is soulful stuff. Yeah, bring your honey to see this two-time Grammy Award winner, Gregory Porter. He'll be there Saturday evening. Tickets still available. Check him out. Um, he combines soul and gospel and jazz, and it's wondrous. It's beautiful. And uh, this is the guy who has recently released um, an album, Nat King Cole and, and Me. Uh, so Nat King Cole, see, that'd be a great guy to go to if you're in a romantic mood. And um, really, Gregory Porter, August Wilson, Cultural Center, just one of the amazing nights that go on ad infinitum right over there down the street on Liberty Avenue. Okay. What else we got? <laughs> um, I have, uh, I'm not going to do it. Do I have time? I got six minutes. I feel like all I've been doing is reading to you. Do you mind if I read one more thing? Um, we were talking about anti-Semitism the other day, which nobody wants to talk about. Um, and believe me, uh, woke Jews uh, know that no one wants to hear us talk about it. So I do this again with uh, knowing that a lot of you are thinking, oh, shit. But I read something that a woman wrote in The Nation, and um, I thought it was, you know, I could have written it. You know, when somebody says what you're saying, what you feel, what you're thinking. And so for those of you who are willing to hear um, let me read it, because anti-Semitism arrives in the news like a migraine, a premonition promising pain with a swift, thorough delivery on that promise. 
Again, this is a Jewish woman writing this. The flap over Congresswoman Ilhan Omar's dashed off seeming tweets about a pro-Israel lobbying group has stretched on for days, each of which has lasted a century. Thus far, Republicans have chided Democrats for allowing, allowing a supposed anti-Semite in their midst. Democrats have capitulated somewhat, as is their want. Leftist Jews have chided centrists and right-wing Jews who have chided them right back. Just about everyone has weighed in from Chelsea Clinton to the president who appeared unwanted but inevitably like piss in city snow. And in the Twitter mire and growing pile of think pieces, in the swirling intersection of prejudices of this particular mini-scandal, clarity on what anti-Semitism is exactly and how to prevent it becomes less and less clear with every word. The primary feeling I have when anti-Semitism comes up in the news is exhaustion. It's almost preemptive. At the first mention of the word by a single pundit, all the strength leaves my bones. I want to drape myself on a divan and read the tender Jewish fiction of Joseph Roth for the next 20 years. Time and again, I've watched disputes over anti-Semitism whirl up and come to nothing leaving only acrimony in their wake. The prospect of engaging with these discussions winds me, wins me, winds up being, sorry, winds up being little more than daunting. This is not to downplay the importance of anti-Semitism. As a world historical phenomenon, it's remarkably durable. As a political tool, it retains the weight of a lead bludgeon the way it has surged back into prominence in recent years is impressive and unavoidable if you're a Jew. The notion of eradicating it, like eradicating any hatred, is impossible. And it has recently led to a massacre in Pittsburgh, so the stakes are high and the wound freshly scabbed. But fighting anti-Semitism is like boxing a hydra. The scholar Deborah Lipstadt defines anti-Semitism as, in essence, a conspiracy theory. This makes it a very different sort of prejudice than mere disdain or closing one's country club to Jews. Anti-Semitism is a world view, more or less detailed, depending on the dedication of the anti-Semite. Distilled to its essence, it's a postulation of nefarious transnational control by Jews of institutions inspired by malevolence and cunning unique to only Jews as a people. That is precisely the thesis brought forward in the Henry Ford finance book, The International Jew, published almost 100 years ago. It's repetitious, but its thesis arrives early on in an essay titled The Jewish Question, Fact or Fancy. And here's some of what it says. The world-controlling Jew has riches, but he also has something much more powerful than that. The international Jew, as already defined, rules not because he is rich, but because in a most marked degree he possesses the commercial and masterful genius of his race and avails himself of a racial loyalty the like of which exists in no other human group. Those are Henry Ford's words. Um, the notion of the Jew as a puppet master is at the core of anti-Semitism and has little to do uh, with individual Jews and everything to do with who you believe controls the world. Anti-Semitism must be a comforting theory. It's been called the socialism of fools, a reductive theory that rages about economic equality by placing blame for all disparities at the feet of the Jew. Thus, vitriol is neatly directed at a set of individuals while the system continues to function as it always has. And perhaps it is soothing to think that the world, instead of a lewd and ghastly welter of chaos, is actually being driven according to a distinct plan, even if it is a villainous one, believing that the defeat of the Jew would mean the defeat of evil is an optimistic thought. It means you believe that evil can vanish.
Anti-Semitism also retains another classic feature of conspiracy theory. It is immune to fact. And in an age in which new conspiracies take root so readily, in which anti-vaccination conspiracies have led to measles-ridden towns, in which an anonymous poster on A-chan can rally thousands behind the cryptic claims of QAnon, what chance does the oldest conspiracy theory of all have of vanishing? <coughs> Anti-Semitism is a central tenet of the white supremacist worldview. In the eyes of racists, organized efforts to attain racial parity cannot be created by those deemed intellectually inferior by virtue of their race. And so the cunning Jew is inserted as a catalyst. Prior generations of white nationalists believed that the NAACP was funded completely by Jews. Robert Bowers, the shooter at Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, has a similar motivation, believing Jews were responsible for promoting racial mixing. But it was modernized slightly by the idea that Jews are the eminence grise that drives immigration into the United States. Bowers was obsessed with the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. The members of the Republican Party that so smugly mouth pieties about anti-Semitism today were perfectly happy to play along with a midterm strategy that posited that George Soros, a Jew, was the creator and financier of migrant caravans north. I'm not going to have time to, to do this all, um, but let me just cut to our last chapter. Discussing anti-Semitism can be maddening, at times even counterproductive. Trying to box a hydra can drain the limbs of strength, and yet this oldest of conspiracy theories has led to millions of deaths, 11 in Pittsburgh this year. It's led to terror plots, to assassinations, to threats, and to desecration of our graves. It must be discussed, because allowing anti-Semitism to fester in darkness, poorly understood and winkingly insinuated, is to allow it to flourish unchecked, and when it does, it poisons all it touches. That is um, much of it, part of it. But I think keep that in your head when she says, quoting Lipstadt, anti-Semitism is different than other racism because it's a conspiracy theory. It's hugely international in scope. It's a conspiracy theory and an easy way to save the world, eradicate the Jew. That's different than normal racism. Think of it that way and understand it has always been something that is a marvelous tool for those who want to divide like-minded people. And it's being used now, and we're just seeing the beginnings of it, in an effort to divide progressives from each other, liberals from each other, Semites from each other, Americans from each other. And to discount it is to be an idiot. You have to know history. Speaking of history, let's bring in our historian. <laughs> I'm sorry, Joe. Come on in. Dr. Buzzkill, I mean, professor, uh, yeah, hair professor. professor. Hair professor, Dr. Oops, it goes down. There's nothing we can do. <laughs> hair professor, Dr. Buzzkill. You know, someday a, we got to have you in on this. The, 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 oh, Lordy, yeah. Yeah, anti-Semitism. I mean, stops. I just never stopped. And why it's so enduring. And this is a fascinating piece that it says it's different because unlike just hatred of somebody because of skin color or religion, it's a conspiracy theory. Yeah, about the worldwide Jewish, Jewish like, yeah, as if they're, the it's just, Jews. it's just, it's, and it's long standing. It's like endless. It's, been, it's, it's been endless. going since the 18th century. Right. It's endless. So the conspiracy theorists, that is. Well, well like the protocols of the elders. Well, yeah. Oh, it's, it's just, coming, right? it's just it's beyond just belief. As crazy as, as everything else we talk yeah. about. Yeah. So speaking of crazy, so this is Professor Buzzkill, and I'm going <laughs> to, Looking for your um, uh, okay. Here's your your basic. Uh, basic I just want to get you your. Um, uh, he uh, is also known in polite company as Joseph 
Hill. Right, right. Who Hill? Yeah, I try not to use that name because uh, I get so much hate mail for Professor Buzzkill that uh, I'm afraid of being chased down the street. What people do you mean you get hate? Oh, because people love their their history myths and they want to cling to them, and then when I bust them, they. Okay, yeah. so this is a myth buster. This is a conspiracy theory buster. This is somebody <laughs> who actually. <laughs> yeah. Traffics in fact. I traffic well, in fact. Well, aren't you out of step I with the times? I am totally out of step <laughs> with the times. But there's big money in trafficking in fact. I'm absolutely rolling in it. Our podcast is doing great because people are hungry for shows like your show, shows like my show. So tell people how to get your podcast before we get into all your They can stuff. get it on all their famous, all their favorite podcast apps. They can get it at professorbuzzkill.com. Uh, we're very fortunate we're here in Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh is one of the podcast centers of the universe, center of the podcast universe. Libsyn is here, uh, the big distributor, and my uh, media folks, Sidekick Media, help us pu- push the word out. So this is one of the best places to be. So pis- uh, professorbuzzkill.com, and that's where you get all the Twitter stuff and all the other st- all the other connection things. Okay, so you were a history professor back I in mean, the twentieth century. Yeah. Did you get y- you were at Oxford? When I w- yeah in the twenty that's against another twentieth century phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> and you wait a minute though. So are you an American or what? Because you went to the University of Melbourne for your masters and then yeah. you go to the to London. I mean Oxford for your uh, doctorate or something. And yeah. so how'd you what? What the U.S. wasn't good enough for you? Well, no, I am U.S. I'm in fact I was born in Toledo, you know, <laughs> right? right. Okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Midwesterner, and I went to college in California, and then I got a couple scholarships, a scholarship to go to Melbourne for my master's degree, and then I got a scholarship to go to Oxford, and I was specializing in British and European history, so it seemed like that's a, good a nice place, place to, go. to be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it'd be a very good place to be. Yeah. So, yeah. we thought we'd get a historical perspective on one of our president's favorite subjects. And that would be walls, big, beautiful right. walls. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, we've had them forever in history. They're sure. a major part of civilization, but uh, the development of civilization, but they don't necessarily always do what people say they're going to do, and they don't necessarily always work. And so I, I kept putting it off, but I finally just got sick to death of hearing that, you know, walls work, walls solve all these problems. And so we did a show, we have a show this week about border walls in history. Why were they built, and, and did they work? And the answer is they were built for complicated reasons, and they didn't always work. So you know, it's funny. I was I, I just had this image pop into my head. I was in St Andrews in Scotland yep. um, a few years ago, and I was at some old wreck of a castle, and uh, someone was explaining to me how people had holed up in the castle, mm-hmm. you know, to be safe, yeah. and how these guys came in, I forget who, from the North Sea, and stood outside the castle. I mean, how the hell are we going to get in here? And of course, they yep. went under. <laughs> and, and and that was the first time, and I remember somebody said, they undermined. That's right. That's where that that's word where comes that from. That's where that word comes right, from. Right, right. And it's, it's, it's duh. Yeah. They went under, and I, I was able to go in and crawl in some of the... Oh, really? Yeah, oh, in wow. some of the uh, places that they had... Um, yeah, St. Andrews is beautiful, that, but and it is it was a walled town and a walled right. uh, the church. But but you're right. I mean, I- <laughs> ancient walls. Uh, we talk on the show all the way back to Sumer and and the Great Wall of China. They've all been undermined in that way. Anytime there's a superior force, whether it's smarter or more technologically advanced, they can defeat any concrete brick wall. So to think that we're going to have a border wall that's going to solve all our immigration, migration, drug problems all in one go is just ridiculous. But you do know that Trump doesn't really give a damn about the wall and That's and, my and suspicion, his yeah. It's yeah. it's a means to uh, an end which is not a wall but getting his to satisfy the people who think that that, that a wall yeah. is a good idea. And, and you're never going to reach them because those are people who think who believe everything Donald Trump says. Well, that's what's so unfortunate, and that's why I think it's so important to, to talk about these things because, you know, it only takes five minutes of reading or maybe even three uh, minutes of reading. That's more than the president has done all <laughs> week. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but you're right. It's, it's, it's not so much the president that, that is a problem. It's the people, it's the pe- it's the people. people out there. And, you know, 
you've got to think these things through. Sure, well, offense, fences make good neighbors, but if your neighbor is a determined to get into your yard, your neighbor's going to get, get into, into your, your yard. yard. It just uh, And even ring doorbell <laughs> ain't going to save you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and as soon as, as, as soon as cannons were invented back, you know, in the four, 13th, 14th century, brick and mortar concrete is really, walls. Is that what did them in? Because well, they could be taken down yeah, and with one yeah. and, and, and And also, you know, as I said on our show, our immigration problem is mostly about people overstaying their visas. And how did they o overstay their tourist visas? They flew here in an airplane over what would have be the Trump wall. They flew here legally. Legally, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and then they stayed too long. We're talking about solving a problem with the wrong solution. So. And you're t here's where I get my head just starts exploding. Yes, and you're talking reasonably and rationally. <laughs> I and hope so. no, that's not. We're Oh, it's just maddening. That, okay, so that's, let's that's the saddest thing about the the last five years of our country is, is that is that people don't facts bother. Facts don't matter. Facts don't matter. People don't don't bother even to take just a few minutes to check things out. Uh, but you know, speaking of facts, history, yeah, is rife with uh, uh, fake news. Oh, sure, absolutely. Right, that's why we we're able to do our show. Yeah. Yeah, history is. Well, who who said it? I mean, it's written by written the winners. Written or by the winners, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, do we know who well, said it? that's a good question. It may be Teddy Roosevelt, and it may be Mark Twain. That's another thing we do on our show. We bust myths about quotes, and that one is sort of unknown. Whoever first okay. came came up with that, but that's certainly true. People who uh, accomplish whatever they want to accomplish then go down and then go back and write they about. They get what to they write what they did. Right. On the other hand. Uh, human groups are notorious in being lazy and not paying attention, and all sorts of other evidence eventually creeps out. Archaeological evidence, for instance, in ancient times, we know a lot about the enemies of the Romans because of the archaeological evidence left behind. Often the Romans would complain about, oh no, there are these, these groups attacking us. So there's a lot of evidence out there that just people haven't taken the time to look at. And thank goodness there are people like me and other professional yeah. students who do that. And we try to tell everyone, but I'm afraid it's not getting very far. No. You know, I have to tell you, in, uh, when I went off to college myself um, way back in the 60s, um, I spent the first semester essentially learning that most of what I had learned yeah. in, in grade school, school yeah. and high school was a pack of lies. What is that? Well, I, I or it just wasn't the full story, or whatever yeah, it was. What? I, I I don't want. I sometimes th there's a very famous book called Lies My Teacher Told Me. Yeah. It's about uh, different misunderstandings of American history, and I don't like to use the word lies in that context because I think that the the people most of the time, well our teachers were well were 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 telling what they were what they were given. And what they were given when we were young was the great American story of this kind of progress in these kinds of ways and skipped over or certainly treated with kid gloves uh, uncomfortable issues like slavery and, and things like that. And so it's not, again, it's the kind of the fault of the, I always take it back, the fault of the populace. We need, we need it then and we need now to say, no, wait a minute, my, f my own personal life, my own family life is more complicated than that. <laughs> so how could it be that it's Ben Franklin, this, then this, and this, and then suddenly yeah, we're going to the moon? Yeah, how come? You know, think about your own life. Your own life is all full of warps and weaves and, and different things going on. Can you imagine a country's history is uh, infinitely more complex. So that that's why a simple story is almost always Always too wrong. Oh. If it fits on a bumper sticker, <laughs> yeah. other than the one that says shit happens, it can't <laughs> be true. I'm telling you. Yeah. Okay, what's the first wall that we... In our, with our meager knowledge, think uh, of historically the first. I mean, the wall that's known that was built to, yeah. like Trump's wall. Uh, well, the uh, mo almost all of them were built de for defensive purposes, not exactly like Trump. Yeah. yeah. Well, he claims. Well, isn't that, that defense? There are hordes yeah. of women yeah. and children coming. But it's not true. <laughs> the 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 Sumerians way back in what is now Iraq, uh, ancient what is now Iraq, built a wall to try to keep out invading nomad groups uh, and the um, the Greeks built walls to, to the Athenians built walls to try to help defeat the Spartans but but it almost always was an, an extremely military it was military. fortification it but was but not intended to keep out immigrants or migrants or trade or anything like that 
and all the way up to Hadrian's Wall and the Roman Empire. These are all the ancient sort of famous walls. They were all Hadrian's built... Hadrian's Wall was in... In northern England. England. Right. It's a, it's a very, very far north of England. Was at the, When it was built, it was the, the, the northern limit of the Roman Empire. And it was to keep the what, witch hordes the out Picts there. The and other native uh, Celts okay. out. But it was also to help regulate trade. It was also to help you know, have places for barter and bringing in natural resources. Walls are m a lot more sophisticated and flexible and you know, useful than just, you know, walling ourselves in and hiding from everybody. That's why the Berlin Wall was so famously uh, weak and, and ineffective is because it only had one thing to do. Wall people in. Wall people in, and, and it was totally, you know, totally against the grain. So, and, and ever since then, the Great Wall of China, Right, great walls in Constantinople, all these things have almost always initially been military only, especially against small raiding groups, and were never never intended to, to keep out migration, either inflow or outflow, and they're eventually they're breached. The thing about the Great Wall of China, I can never figure how long is that damn thing? It's like thousands and thousands. How could it even be policed? Well, so yeah. who would even know if somebody had breached the wall? <laughs> Uh, it was part, well, some of it was in, in the imperial period, some of it was a, j a big job scheme. You know, you had to have, put a lot of people to work building it, and then a lot of people, you know, manning it, so to speak. But um, there were a lot of different walls. First of all, it's not just one. There, there were How lots of How long did that take to build? Oh, it's Hundreds it's of years? Oh, yeah. It starts, in the, it starts in B.C. is not really finished. Uh, the walls that we tend to think of now are 14th century. 1300s and 1400s in the 20th century. So okay. we're talking about a thousand years. But there are different walls at different times. It did their, they they built almost all in the north, but they built them sometimes out of emergency, for emergency reasons. They're under attack, and then eventually, over time, as the Chinese Empire gets strong, they're able to make the walls very, very permanent and very, very long. But that's only because the empire is strong and the out outlying areas, their outlying enemies, are weak. Right. It's not, be, not like they can suddenly put up a wall against, I don't know, the, the invading Russian hordes. If the invading Russian hordes are as powerful as you are, you're in trouble. Yeah, they're going to come through so yeah. or over or yeah. under or something. They're coming. Yeah, so it, it, it served the same purpose as almost all the other walls have, except for the Berlin Wall, which is the weird sort of exception. That can't yeah. be the only one that was built to keep people in. Uh, may, maybe not. Well, first of all, every city in the ancient world and early modern world was had, had a wall. Yeah. Keep people in, keep people out. Protect uh, churches to protect universities. Even. Right, right, right. So there was all all those things. But the Berlin Wall w is really strange because it's a 20th century, and and built to keep people in at a time when you know everybody had given up on the physical wall as an idea of protection. I mean, the 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 Atlantic Wall in World War II was ships. It wasn't. Right. Uh, it wasn't a physical wall. The, the Cold War walls that we had and the Soviets had were airplanes, not brick-and-mortar walls. So to throw, up a, to throw up a wall in 61 in Berlin was, uh, you know, as crazy as talking about putting up a wall now. But in, in some ways, wasn't it? It was also psychological. Yes. Uh, yeah. Right? Right. It's it's a form of sort of terrorizing their population, right, terrorizing their own people. Yeah. Yeah. It would, there's a, there's a there's a sliver of of the fact that when when travel between East Berlin and West Berlin was easier, lots of West Berliners would go to East Berlin because the products were cheaper, right? They get the same more or less the same thing at, at East Berlin prices, communist prices, and bring them back, and so that got a little bit old. But mainly it was for propaganda purposes and to try to keep people from fleeing to the West. And of course, it worked in a way, but a lot of people died. And you know, it was very, 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 very shameful stain on on both the East German government and the Soviet government. The and propaganda hay that the, that the West made out of the Berlin Wall. Well, that's what I was gonna say. Amazing. I mean, they gave, it was a gift absolutely, to, absolutely. to the West. Practically an own goal, you know, it's, it's just, it was crazy. And really, when you think about it, although, you know, it seems to last a long time in our lifetimes, didn't last that long. No. You know, 28 years or something. You know, the Great Wall of China stands for thousands. But that's, that's p I think when you hear wall, you think permanent. You think, ah, now we've got the solution. This is going to work and it's going to work forever. But it, it never has. It's human nature, though, yeah. is it not, right. Professor, to think, just as a child thinks, mm, that sure. if I get behind this thing, I'm, I'm, s I'm safe. I mean, that's 
humans must have all, I mean, and in some ways it, it gives you, buys you time. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we'll build a wall, we'll build a moat, mm-hmm. we'll, and people these are should, barriers. Yeah, people should go to the Buzzkill bookshelf again, professorbuzzkill.com, because our book, our book on the Buzzkill bookshelf this week is Professor David Fry's book called Walls, A History of Civilization in Blood and Brick, and that's what he talks about, the early walls especially keep out n- uh, raiding nomads and allow for the development of civilization, sophisticated trade, sophisticated commerce. Yeah. But again, the, they're not, they don't last forever. And the, if, if the culture that builds them starts to weaken, then the walls weaken. So, uh, but it, you're right. It, there's something in the human psyche that says to us, our strategic air command is not a real wall. <laughs> but the wall around my backyard is a real wall and keeps my dangerous neighbors out. Where in, in, in truth, the street, tr- strategic air command is as close to a, a, a real 21st wall. century wall as we're ever going to get. Yeah. But we're, you know, here's here's the thing. I, I, here's what I keep seeing in this crazy time. Human nature is, we're still cave. I keep saying we're yeah. ca- we're cavemen with smartphones. You, <laughs> right? You can, I mean, you can talk, you academic, till you're blue in the face. Yeah. But people feel. Protect, obviously millions of people feel protected by a wall. Mm-hmm. Trump wouldn't have this as, as, as his battle cry if oh, no, it no, wasn't, yeah. it just doesn't, it resonates, right? Yeah, but we should be smart enough to just take a little pause and think about it. Yes, my backyard wall does prevent my neighbor's dog from coming in and terrorizing me, but, you know, that's about it. We should be more grown up than that. Once, it get, once civilization gets to a certain point and we have nuclear weapons... Yeah. You know, we need to think of, uh, of how else to protect ourselves, how else to solve our problems. It's kind of, maybe it's maybe it's natural, maybe it's in our DNA, but it is kind of childish to talk about walling ourselves off in the 21st century. <laughs> it's not even kind well, of okay, childish. Well, okay, I should say. <laughs> yeah. This is modern media. It's very childish. It's totally childish. <laughs> it's so stupid. I can't believe it. Have humans throughout history, though, al- always had the need to delineate yeah. Borders. Yeah, and that's and one. I yeah, and that's one of the most important reasons why walls get built. A lot of tax purposes. The Romans, for instance, built Hadrian's Wall partly pr- to protect against native Celts in the north, but also to, pr- to tell the, the people in the north of Britain, look, we're protecting you from those savages. Pay us. Pay up. Yeah, and that that's that goes that goes right through human history. Uh, cities, especially old cities in Europe, build walls as part of their sort of civic responsibility, but also as a way to wa- raise revenue and keep themselves protected. So w- what we tried to talk about on this show, on, on our show Tuesday, was something that seems as simple as a wall is so incredibly complicated, both the reasons behind it, how they work, and how they work in different contexts or don't work in different contexts. Not n- it's never as simple. The, wall, the word wall only has four letters, but the, the, the meaning behind wall or walls is, is infinite. You know what I was thinking is, you know, we're so, and you're, you're a professor of European history, so, but I was thinking, I'm not aware of as many, like, walls in South America or in, yeah. or in Africa. Do, we, do you think... But not Africa so much, although some of the bigger mosques in uh, East Afri- Eastern Africa are very impressive, and, and some in West Africa too, Northwest Africa. I don't but think th- the ancient Incans, Incans and the Aztecs had huge si- walled cities. They did. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know, not the Native th- Americans in what is North America. No, though. no. And they didn't even have a concept of ownership of land. Or is that a myth? Um, that's probably a myth, but I, w- I want to want to say something that should be said <coughs> a, a lot more by even people who claim to be experts like me. I don't know enough about that, and that's a good thing for you. You know, you you Lynn Cullenites out there should go look up <laughs> the Native American concept of land ownership because the last time I read about it was you know thirty years ago. Well, if there were all these tribes, they had to have a sense of their territory, yes, right? Yes, and right? There, there actually are negotiations so between, well, negotiations. There's, there are certainly discussions between settlers and and the government and Native uh-huh. American tribes. It always, always ends up being one way, the power flow, but but yeah, there's definitely a concept of land. It's not as if there, there there's a sort of difference in the Native American mind that doesn't think of borders or, or ownership of territory. No, that's certainly not true. Uh, 
a defensive wall that I saw and was shocked when I saw it because it didn't look like I thought it would. I was on a bus traveling, but I was in Israel. And all of a sudden, somebody said, I'd been sort of noticing this nice little village and stuff um, up on a hill. But there was a a wall that looked sort of like the kind of walls that are built up now alongside uh, highways where there are... Noise reduction walls, yeah. That's what it looked like. Yeah. And somebody said, that's the wall. That's the... the And I said, that's the wall? Yeah. It... It just, it wasn't, <clears throat> I don't know, it wasn't what I expected at all. I later encountered it, and it didn't look like that at all. The wall was different in various places, and the wall yeah. had lots of ingress and egress mm-hmm. areas to it. But that wall, when it was built, was built because to protect the Israeli citizenry from... Car bombs and... From other people coming in with bombs. And right. and they were killing a lot of... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an effort to control the influx of people dangerous people dangerous people but of course it ends up complicating it ends up being a pr nightmare for that sure, country it's a city against a, well, a civilization against itself and and it it, it it worked but but in in almost exactly the same ways as the great wall of china and a lot of these ancient walls were designed to protect against sort of one-off raids and nomadic raids. The Israeli wall is so that car bombs cannot be just, cars can't be driven in with bombs in them and explode. It's, it was an attempt, w- the Israeli wall is not an attempt to stop migration of Palestinians. No, in we have people come yeah. in and out. Yeah. That, and that same trip, I'm, I'm going uh, from Israel into Jordan, yeah. and I see a whole bunch of people going the other way <coughs> into Israel, and I said, who are they? And they are... Those were uh, Jordanians coming into Israel to work back yeah. and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And the Israelis wouldn't want to, the Israeli government wouldn't want to stop that because they need Nor the would the Jordanian government right. because well, yeah, they want yeah, their people yeah, to yeah. have those jobs. They yeah. were at construction jobs in, in, in Israel. That's what we like to say on the show. It's, it's just so complicated. A wall seems so simple. And it's never. And it seems to mean X, but it, it's not simple, and it means X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E. Yeah. Jeez, people should travel more, don't well, you think? Well, there's that, yeah. <laughs> there is that. And but if we wall them off, they're not going to be able to travel. You know, there's a place right around here named Wall. A town? Yeah. A neighborhood? W-A-L-L. Where the hell is that? Wall, Pennsylvania? Wall? Pe- just like, you know, Pennsylvania, when I moved here, I was so blown away by the place names because, you know. <laughs> Some of them were, yeah. Yeah, you know, like. Uniontown. Yeah. <laughs> uh, moon. moon so you can go to the moon. You can go to <laughs> Wall. Wall is around here. Where is it, Amy? It's near Wilmerding. Okay. Well, there you go. Which is another favorite, <laughs> favorite placement of mine. <laughs> I live in Wall. I can't, who knows yeah. why that would be? I imagine there's some person <laughs> named Henry Wall back in the 18th century. Who, that, that's who what I'm thinking, yeah. that it would be. It's it probably would. not a Wall Wall. <laughs> but oh, the fact dear. that we have a little town called Pitcairn is fascinating, because after because all, that's an island, you know, in the, in the Pacific. So... Uh, you know, we name things for all sorts of reasons. Verona, you know, in Pennsylvania. North Versailles. <laughs> North Versailles. We have all these different <laughs> names from outside. So, I mean, I, I hope there are at least two gentlemen in Verona. That's a Shakespearean <laughs> reference for all you buzzkillers out there. Yeah, and for my audience, who certainly know that, right? So, again, Professor, thank you very much. But tell people, he does a podcast once, once a week. A week. And uh, tell them again they can get to you. iTunes, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get all this, all the standard podcast places, Spotify, and of course ProfessorBuzzkill.com, our our homepage and our sort of walled-in home (laughs) website. What's up next for your next podcast? Do you know? Our next podcast, we're going to talk about another contemporary political subject, which is why is the word socialist in the official name of the Nazi Party? Yeah, which has caused a lot of confusion. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's what we're, we're gonna we're gonna fix all that next week. Whether you whether it, whether it penetrates Anne in your skull is another, or <laughs> no, not Anne Coulter, Laura Ingram. She's worse about that one subject. Is, oh. is another story. Oh God. Hey, thank you for. I think of you a little bit like uh, you know, uh, the man of La Mancha. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people attempting to to educate people these yeah. days. Well, it's 
bit well, like tilting at windmills, it seems. We like to do it. Maybe they will have a, a musical about me one day. Okay. Professor Buzzkill, ladies and gentlemen, very nice. We'll have you back again. Thank okay? you. Thank That'd you. be nice. Thank you all, and I'll, I'll be back uh, tomorrow because I got nowhere else to go. <laughs> See ya. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers. <laughs>